0: You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, or today's text is printed there on page 9 in your bulletin, the next prophet in our series on the school of the prophets. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, and female servants, and the best of your young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, the Lord said to Samuel, "Obey their voice and make them a king." Samuel then said to the men of Israel, "Go, every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord." And as ever, our Father, we ask you for a mighty working of your Spirit now, <clears throat> with your Word, to glorify yourself in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'm I want I'm hoping that this short series of sermons will be a kind of exercise in self-awareness. Basically, I'm trying to help us become aware of something about us that we don't, I'm sure is not at all obvious, and that is that on the day of Pentecost, as we saw in the first sermon, on the day of Pentecost when Jesus from heaven poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church, that was something we might not realize. That was Jesus giving to his church the power and the authority for prophetic mission to carry on Jesus' mission, his witness as a prophet on earth. He was giving the mantle of his power and authority to bear witness, to speak the life-giving word of God, to do that in his name on earth and with his spirit. Pentecost was where the prophethood of all believers began. We think of the priesthood of believers, but the prophethood of believers might be something we don't think a lot about. And that's a pretty big thing to absorb, and so we need some guidance on what does that even mean, what's that look like. And so what we've done in this series is we've turned for some guidance to the Old Testament prophets, the prophets before Jesus came. And I don't want to blur their uniqueness. You know, their ministries were unique. You know, I'm not Elijah, you're not Isaiah. I want to go crazy with the analogy. But these, these prophets do show us how it is that God uses mere mortals, like you and me, men of passions like ours, they were humans like us, how God uses mortals to bring his life-giving word to this world. We started with Abraham. Abraham's important because he shows us that prophethood doesn't start with preaching on a street corner. Prophethood starts by living the word and praying the word. Abraham was to do righteousness and justice in his household. That's where he had to begin. He was to pray, and he did pray, that God's righteousness and justice would prevail among the nations. That that was his prophetic work. And then we moved on to Moses last week. Moses was building on a whole lot bigger scale than Abraham. Abraham was building a household. Moses is building a nation. we really up the scale here. We saw that his most famous confrontational ministry in Egypt, as important as that was, actually takes up a lot less space in the Bible than his constitutional ministry, his work of building a whole people, hundreds of thousands of people, building them around God's presence and purposes in the world. But prophets don't just minister God's word to raise up households and to raise up peoples. They also minister God's word to raise up leaders. Communities are shaped by their leaders. That is just a thing. And so there's another wave of prophethood that shows up in the Old Testament when it's time for Israel not to be made a people, but to have a king. And I want to begin today in the first part of this message by just talking about the problem of rulership as it shows itself in this text, and I want to focus in on verse 20. So hopefully you got a bulletin as you came in, and you can look at page 9 and find verse 20. Look at this with me. I want to talk about the problem of rulership. We could, we could spend hours unpacking verse 20. We won't, but I just want to notice two things that kind of are, they present the problem, attention here. On the one hand, at, in the second half of verse 20, there is an enormously rich insight that these people speak. They want a king who, they say, we want our king to judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, that is actually an amazing thing to think about. Do you notice the pronouns? Our king, to judge us, to go before us, to fight our battles. What we're hearing in that end of the verse is the voice of a people. These people are not speaking as individuals. It's not, you know, Jedediah Jew speaking out, I think we need a king. It's not, you know, the Zebulonites are for the Zebulonites. The Zebulonites won't want a king. We want someone to rule over our tribe. This is a people. It isn't just a collection of individuals and even tribes. It's a people speaking here, and they have a sense of unified identity. They speak in those second person, those, those, those first person plural pronouns, we, our, us, they have a sense of identity where it's not just Ben Miller or Andrew Miller, it's the Millers, we. You notice the people language, and they can speak, because of this unified identity, they can speak with one voice. And they have common interests. It isn't just what this tribe wants or this individual wants. They have common interests as a people, and they want those common interests to be adjudicated and represented and fought for. We want someone to judge our interests. We want someone to go before our interests and represent them in the world. We want someone to fight our battles, to fight for our common interests. So there's this whole idea of a people with their common interests. I just want to just take a moment with this. Notice a few things. The people preexist the king. Do you notice that? That's, that's significant. The people, this unified people who can speak with one voice, they pre-exist the king. That's God's work. God made Israel Israel. God called Abraham and his family. He made them a people. And it's interesting, it's not just that their being a people pre-exists the king. Their sense of being a people pre-exists the king. That's Moses' work. Moses took this Ragtag group of former slaves, and you know, they, they still had some tribal identity, but he brings them to Mount Sinai and he speaks God's word to constitute them as a people now. And they have this sense we are a thing. And yet, here's, here's what's interesting precisely because they are a people, they seek a king. Because they're a people, they want someone who can act for them and in whose person they can act as a people. Are you with me? This is actually, I'm going to read a few lines from Oliver O'Donovan, because if that kind of doesn't seem like something we connect to, you can see it all over the place in the world. And O'Donovan says this, he says, political representation, now this is obviously, they want a representative, right? They want a representative, someone to stand in our place and act for us. That's political, clearly, it's a king. But O'Donovan says political representation is a special case Of a wider phenomenon. Many kinds of practical cooperation, which have no political authority, depend on the emergence of a representative to provide what we imprecisely describe as leadership. I mean, think about a soccer game. If the entire team of players, right down to the water boy, has to walk out to the middle of the field to shake the referee's hand, this is going to be quite a mess. We let the team captain do this. If every single person in your corporation, right down to the poor guy who just wants to show up and mop the floors, has to be on every single business meeting to make every single decision for your organization, you are going to have chaos. You need every, every cooperative action. We look for representatives through what we imprecisely call leadership. Now listen to what O'Donovan says about those representatives or so-called leaders. Representatives afford us a sense of ourselves in action. Ourselves us, in action. They afford us a sense of an identity that's not the whole of what we know about ourselves, but it locates certain specific endeavors as part of a larger corporate body undertaking. Every activity generates its representatives who are authorized to speak and act for everyone else, identifying ourselves through our representatives, you act for us, you do this in our place, we are too big a thing, you stand and act as the person who represents us, identifying ourselves through our representatives. We are acting in you, we are acting through you now. We construct a picture of the world in which our collective endeavors are significant. That it isn't just Ben Miller doing his thing in the world, Trinity Church is a thing, the Miller family is a thing, You know, this corporation is a thing, this state is a thing, this nation is a thing, this team is a thing. We construct a picture of the world in which our collective endeavors have significance. Community yearns to make its mark upon the world, says O'Donovan. It isn't just individuals who want to leave a mark. Community wants to make its mark upon the world. Now to picture this, leaving O'Donovan now, to picture kind of how this works, I want you to think about your head. Imagine if I were to walk out into the lobby this afternoon after worship and one of you were to come up to me and you were to crouch down and start talking very earnestly to my kneecap. And after several minutes of this, it becomes somewhat awkward for me because you're talking very earnestly to my kneecap and I'm sort of standing up here, you know, and I'm wondering what's going on, and you're, you know, we're having a conversation, but you're talking to my kneecap. What would be the most obvious, natural thing for me to say at that moment? What I would say to you if you were talking to my kneecap is, hey, I'm up here. I'm up here. Stand up. Talk to me. Now, I want you to imagine if after you stand up and my head now starts talking to you the way normal people talk to each other, later on in the car, my kneecap just starts yelling at my head. Who do you think you are? How dare you say, how, use, how dare you use the word I as if you are somehow everything, as if you're the, you know, you just are this big old, you know, boss, you know, thing up there on top of the body telling everybody what to do. What you could actually say when I speak, the body is speaking. I think that my head would tell my kneecap, That's because when I speak, the body is speaking. I'm the head. When I speak, you are speaking. When I speak, my whole body, my whole self, the whole thing is speaking. I'm your voice. I'm your mouth. I'm the head, and I speak for the body. I'm not up here doing my own thing. I am the one who speaks for the body. I represent the body. When I act, the whole body is acting. When I spoke, you were speaking. And that's what headship really is. It's not just giving orders. I mean, I guess your head, in a sense, gives some direction to your body. It does. But headship is not, first and foremost, about giving orders to the rest of the body. It is about standing for the whole body, standing before the whole body. We need to reject the lie today that all hierarchies are oppressive. That is false. What hierarchies, like having a head, do is they enable us, they free us to act as a body, where you don't get to listen to my toes and my fingers and my mouth and my ears and my knees all talking at you at once. There is a unified body speaking through its head. My body is freed to speak corporately through headship, and that's what God is creating here behind the scenes. There's a problem we'll get to in a moment, but behind the scenes, what God is doing is he's raising up a human king because humans need a head, And God over the centuries is going to show Israel and in time the nations what kind of headship human beings do not need. Kings like Saul, even David, even Solomon. And what kind of a head they do need. Because God here is preparing the way for an ultimate king, not just over Israel but over the world... Who will be the head, he is called, the head of a body of new humanity who will stand before God and stand before the world. The language is in Christ. In Christ acting, we have acted. That is headship. A whole sermon can be preached on that. So that's the insight in verse 20, and it's really powerful. On one hand, this idea of a people who need a representative, who need a king, but on the other hand, that the earlier part of verse 20, you see this very deeply troubling thing, and it shows up in verse 5 as well. The, the, the people demand a king, and they want a kingdom. Did you, did you notice the language, like all the nations. So on one hand, this idea of kingship to represent the people is deeply human. It's fundamental in God's order, but they want a king like the nations. There's a problem. And what is the problem with wanting a king like the nations? Well, the problem with the nations and their kings is that they do not acknowledge God as the high king. The nations and kings of the earth do not say, it is he, God, who has made us, and we are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. That is not how the nations think. They do not acknowledge the most high God. And so what happens in these nations who are in these, with these kings in the nations is that the king... Doesn't see himself as put in place by God to image God to his people, to image God's care, his protection, his provision, to image God's justice to them, God's kindly fatherly rule. And then to step out into the world and to image these people whom he represents to the world. That's not how the kings of the nations think. They don't image God. They don't even believe in God. They don't believe in the Most High. They don't try to image God well to their people or image their people well in the world. What they do is they start trying to make the people in their image. They start carving this people more and more into something that shows off the king himself. And Samuel warns them, you want a king like the nations? This is what he looks like. He takes basically all of you as a people and all of your supplies, and they become ways of feeding his own power and pomp. The people now exist for the king. The king does not exist for the people. Because he does not acknowledge that his kingship was received from the Most High. And interestingly, the people's response in the nations who don't acknowledge God, their response to their kings is either to deify their kings... I mean, how many pagan nations worshipped, and we still have nations in the 21st century, who literally worship their kings? You know, if you don't have the most high, you lift up a king to sort of stand in his place. Or, this is the other side of the coin, they will eventually just delegitimize their kings, as if they are not ordained by God. Isn't it interesting that David, after Saul is anointed king, and Saul is has, he, he's, he's maniacal, He's homicidal. His rule is destructive to the nation. He's out of his mind. He tries to kill David. He's bloodthirsty. He's insane. And David has two opportunities to take him out. If you're in the nations, you just do it. This king is not legitimate. We're just gonna take him out. David says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. How very different from that that very fine phrase, not my president, which one hears all the time. Now, do you hear the pronoun? Not my president. Can I just be blunt? You don't have a president. We have a president. We have a king. That little pronoun acknowledges neither God nor the people, right? David understands that the nations will delegitimize their rulers as easily as they will deify them. And the root of the problem among the nations is that rulers and ruled forget God. The Lord says to Samuel in verse seven, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me from being king over them. That's how the nations are. And that's why we need this figure who's off to the side, and that is The prophet. That's why God gives the prophet. So there's the problem of rulership. In the last part of this sermon, I want to talk about the prophets and rulership and then apply this to us. You'll notice that just at this moment, in the time of the kings being raised up, God raises up prophets. We need the word of God now in a special way. And the timing of this wave of prophets and their task, I want to say it again, it is unique. Gerhardus Voss describes this very well. He says, the prophets of this period, they were guardians of the unfolding theocracy, the unfolding reign of God, and that guardianship was exercised at the center of the theocracy, which was the kingdom, the human kingdom. The purpose was to keep that kingdom a true representation of the kingdom of Jehovah. It sometimes almost appears as if the prophets were sent to the kings instead of to the people. So that's why this wave comes, to speak to the kings. But there's also a principle in that of prophethood that outlives Israel's kings right on into the age of Christ's reign that you and I are living in now, and this is the principle, that rulers and ruled need to hear this message, the most high rules the kingdom of men. That is not something just Israel's kings needed to hear. All rulers, all ruled peoples need to hear the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. All his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That message must go forth, not just to Israel's kings, but to the kings and peoples of all times. The work of prophets is to proclaim in their generation, God reigns. And I want to think about how Israel's prophets did that. Because if you look through their history of the prophets in the age of the kings, that's speaking for the high king, representing the most high king, It meant two things. We'll go through this very quickly, but it meant prosecution and preparation. And we have a lot to learn from both. Let's just look at these briefly. It meant, first of all, prosecution. What do I mean by that? Speaking for the high king, these prophets litigate God's case against rulers who turn away from his covenant and forsake him. They litigate God's case. They argue that God's case against these rulers and peoples. Now in the case of Israel's king, it's very obvious when they departed from the covenant. I mean, you start worshiping Moloch or some other, you know, God of the pagan nations or you know, otherwise, you know, just trample on God's standards of justice. I mean, it's clear you've broken God's covenant and you should be spoken to by the prophets. Same thing with other civic leaders and religious leaders within Israel. But it's interesting the prophets also, the whole books of the Old Testament written by prophets are written to Gentile kings. And Gentile nations the paradigm case is nebuchadnezzar it was to nebuchadnezzar that those words i just read were spoken that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and the prophets are very conscious even though their main ministry is to israel's kings they are very very conscious the earth is the lord's and all it contains the world and all who dwell in it all peoples and rulers throughout the nations have forgotten god now they're not part of israel They haven't broken the Sinai covenant, but they have forsaken the law of God that's revealed in creation and in their own consciences. They have turned away from God, and so the prophets speak to them. They rebuke them. They prosecute the case against them. To both Israel and Gentiles, now in our time we would say to both Christian rulers and to non-Christian rulers, the prophets stand at this fork between life and death, between God's blessing and his curse, and they announce if you go down that road, that leads to death, it leads to cursing. And there are kind of two counts of their indictment in this prosecution work. They're constantly pressing the case that these rulers and peoples under them have turned away from God's sovereignty and turned away from God's standards. You think about God's, the, the, the case of, of turning away from God's sovereignty, like Saul is the example, isn't he? What's Saul's problem? When Saul's little in his own eyes, he knows there's a high king and he's submissive to the high king, he rules well. The identical minute he gets big in his own eyes, he starts thinking he's the high king, he no longer can rule God's people. He's turned away from God's covenant. He doesn't acknowledge the sovereignty of God. David's an example of a king who forgets God's standards or just rejects God's standards when he murders Uriah to get his wife Bathsheba. And in both cases, who shows up to prosecute the case? Samuel has the finger pointed at Saul. Nathan, the prophet, has his finger pointed at David. And can I just say to you guys now to kind of bring this a bit more close to home, that's still what you, you, not Pastor Ben, but you are called by God to do in our time. You too must be aware of when those that God has given you opportunity to speak to, when they have turned away from God's sovereignty and turned away from his standards. I think I've tried, I've tried through sermons and other teachings throughout the years I've tried to give you guys this tool this is a tool you have to have in your toolkit as a Christian today you must know how to argue the unanswerable case that God is sovereign you know how you do it you have to help people see what happens if God is not sovereign C.S. Lewis puts this so crisply and this is a message we must learn to to press in our time as God's prophets he listen to what he says he says the very idea of freedom oh we love freedom the 21st century. The very idea of freedom presupposes some objective moral law which overarches rulers and ruled alike. The very idea of freedom presupposes there's this higher law that overarches rulers and ruled alike. We and our rulers are of one kind only so long as we're subject to one law. But if there's no law of nature, no law of God, then the ethos of any society is the creation of its rulers educators and conditioners and every creator stands above and outside his own creation if you do not want to have a society in which the the authorities the you know the rulers educators and conditioners are on a different plane from everybody else if you want to have freedom of the kind that we north americans say we prize so much you have to have the law of god you have to have the sovereignty of God. And we just need to proclaim as prophets, if you want to be free, you must have, God must be king. If there is no divine sovereignty, there will be human tyranny. It is inevitable. It may be the tyranny of the mob or of some monarch or whatever might lie between, but there's no freedom unless God is king. Press the case. And because God is sovereign, we also press the case in love. We're not obnoxious about this, but we're, we're, we're calling it like it is as prophets. Because God is sovereign, then there are standards. There is such a thing as righteousness and justice and equity. King Lemuel's mother is a prophet, in a sense, when she speaks to him. She says, don't, don't be getting drunk. Don't be chasing women, my son. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's what rulers need to hear, because God is king. There is such a thing as justice. We do not just decide what we want to be the law, what we want to be the policies. We are accountable to the justice and equity of God. That's not just true in the civic realm, by the way. It's true for, it's not just even just true for rulers. And that brings us to another thing in this prosecution role of of, of our prophethood. It isn't just speaking for God's sovereignty and his standards. We also, as communities, prophetic communities, we have to model that message, God may never give you a chance to bear witness to a king. He may not give you a chance to do a lot of speaking this stuff. You may just have to pray this mostly. I don't know. But for sure, in communities like this, we can take the sovereignty of God and his standards, and we can model to the world that this is how rulers rule under God's sovereignty. It is possible to build a family, a church, a school, a business, a larger community, whatever it might be, and to have the culture of leadership the culture of rule in that sphere be one in which the leaders lead, the rulers rule, the representatives represent with what I'm going to call confident humility. That's modeling the message of God's sovereignty and stand. What do I mean by confident humility? I mean confidence that God's given us authority. If God's called you to rule, you should not be ashamed of that. But the humility comes in realizing any time God gives you power or authority, that power or authority, it is accountable to edify. It is accountable to God to represent him well. And in prophetic communities, that's what we're trying to build. A culture of leadership that builds trust, that forms a kind of corporate identity where we think of ourselves as we and then can mobilize unified action because we think of ourselves as, as you know, having common interests. And I've been working on this. I became a father at 28 and a pastor at 30. So for a while now, I've been trying to figure out how to do this well. And it's not easy. Those of you that God has ever called you to lead, you know that this is not easy. If you're in a position of authority or power of any kind, you know how hard this can be to, to stand and be unashamed of your authority. Not, I don't have to apologize that I'm a father. I don't have to somehow shrink back from the fact that I am called by God to preach the word to you. I don't have to be ashamed of that or shrink back from that at all. But how hard is it knowing God has given me certain kinds of authority to exercise that authority in a way that builds trust? I call it building a culture of conversation. I'm trying to do this in my home every day, trying to do this as your pastor. I'm just using myself as an example, but we could give lots of examples from your lives. How do you build a culture of conversation where when there's disagreement, there's dispute, People don't see things the same way. They don't do things the same way. There can be a conversation and you have the humility and the, actually the security to welcome that and just engage. I want, you know, we want the hard questions. We want to help people think. We want to build tr- the trust that comes when people feel like they're being heard and their interests are being represented. That's what prophetic communities do. Modeling the sovereignty of God that's given us authority but it's for their good the way Christ rules as head of his kingdom. Prosecution through our speech and through modeling but there's a second feature of this prophetic work and it's preparation speaking to those who are currently rulers powers authorities etc but secondly preparation prophets equip those equip those who are going to outlive existing rulers cuz here's the reality and prophets never forget this rulers don't remain leaders don't last because many of them fail I mean, look at Samuel, great prophet. But what sets up this whole rulership crisis is a lack of generational faithfulness. Samuel does not prepare his sons. He does not prepare that second generation who are going to outlive him. And all rulers, all leaders, no matter how faithful they are, they all die. Every father dies. Every mother dies. Every pastor dies. Every king dies. There is not a ruler on earth who's going to remain. And prophets, even as they're speaking to existing rulers and authorities, they're also reminding all of us in the realm, from the least to the greatest, it is not we who remain. It is the kingdom of God that remains. That's what lasts. And so it is part of the prophetic mission to raise up those who will raise up others who will raise up others because it's the kingdom that endures. Paul says this to Timothy, the things you've heard from me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others Also, and there's always this eye on the generations to come in a prophetic community. These are our future leaders, even if they never have an official leadership position. By example, representing what we ought to be, these are the future leaders. We need to be preparing them. And so I want to finish up today's message. I actually want to say a prophetic word. I haven't done this since my charismatic days. I want to speak a prophetic word of preparation to our future leaders here as we wrap up. And sort of show you what I mean by this preparatory side of the prophetic mission. So, if you're 25 or younger, can you just dial in for a minute here? This is my prophetic word to you. Four quick things. Number one, you future leaders, incline your ear. Incline your ear. Do you know what it means to incline? It means you lean. Not this, your arms folded. No. Leaning back, you lean in. You incline your ear. Incline your ear. If you do not listen, you cannot lead. You know why you cannot lead? Because if you don't listen, you'll never be able to take anyone, including yourself, any further than your own thoughts. Because you don't listen. If you're not teachable, the Bible says you're a fool. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. And woe to you, O land, if your king is a fool, doesn't listen. You say, Well, the people around me who want me to listen to them are, they are fools. They have nothing to teach me. First of all, that's false. There's always meat there. You might have to spit out a lot of bones. And if it's really true that the people in your life, that God has called to speak into your life, you don't want to listen to them because you don't think they have anything to teach you. First of all, you're probably delusional. There's something there to learn, I'm sure. But if that's the case, then you need to go find someone else to listen to. You need to find people who are wiser than you and incline your ear to them so your mind and your heart and your vision are expanded. The picture of the man who flourishes in Psalm 1 is he meditates on the law of God day and night. He shuts things down, he gets quiet, he plants himself, and he thinks and thinks and thinks because he's listening to the word of the Lord night and day. Samuel, he's a little boy when God first speaks to him. What does Eli tell him he needs to say when God speaks? Speak, Lord, what? Your servant is listening. Incline your ear. Second thing, future leaders. Prophets prepare future leaders. Second thing, choose goodness over happiness. Choose goodness over happiness. Do you see Joel and Abijah in verse 3? You know what the problem with these young men is? They choose happiness, gain over goodness. I read something recently that just completely put me on my backside. This man said, when a father says of his son, I just want him to be happy, it means he's given up hope that his boy will be a man. When a father says of his son, I just want him to be happy, it means he's given up hope his boy will be a man. When a young man or young woman says, I just want to be happy, it means you've given up any hope of being a leader. Choose goodness over happiness. Choose integrity over gain. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how happy you are for a season. It is goodness that endures. And there's a happiness that comes with goodness that you can never know when your goal is happiness. The reality is you will never, my young brothers and sisters, you will never be a good man, you will never be a good woman without suffering. It will not happen. There is no goodness without pain and struggle and suffering. And what I would urge you is then if God, don't go seek it out, for crying out loud, but if God has put suffering and struggle in your life, walk into it. Don't run away from it. Don't be a coward. Don't seek your comfort. If there's something hard to do, walk into it. If there's some suffering that just is part of your life, walk into it. Choose goodness over happiness. We've got to prepare the future generation of leaders to do that. Third thing related to that, run to win you know if you're a runner the finish line determines the race how long is the race that tells me how to run I have to get across that finish line it tells me how to run And when you know what the finish line is, it helps you know what the impediments are. This is between me and the finish line. I gotta get past that. It helps you know what the distractions are. Probably not a good idea to jump and, you know, stop at the hot dog stand on your way to the finish line. it's It's gonna keep you from getting there. It helps you know what is wasting your energy. You're running too fast in this part of the race. You gotta slow down, take it easy so you can finish the race. The finish line determines the race. And brothers and sisters, you gotta run to win. Here's what I mean. I would like you guys, I have to do this often. I'd like you guys to picture yourself, not with fear, with desire. Picture what is coming. This is coming more surely than you are sitting here listening to this sermon. This is coming. Picture yourself standing before your God on Judgment Day. Picture that. Standing before Him. And God, the Almighty, looking over the story of your life to see whether you have redeemed the time. How have you used the few hours God has given you in this world? Can I just say to you, and I'm really going out on a limb here, my guess is it might not be all that important on that day whether you were a phenom at Call of Duty or whether you sucked down another 4,000 TikTok videos. I mean, I'm on a limb, but just saying. Redeem the time. Run to win. God's word for future leaders. And the last, it's kind of where we began my dear young brothers and sisters who will outlive us, see and love your people. See and love your people. Do not conform to what I have come to call the my phone generation. The my phone generation. One of the biggest problems with the iPhone generation is that you think of yourself in terms of a world that exists only for you on your devices. My life, my phone, my friends, my music, my social media. Leaders, rulers, those who are fit to bless God's people, they say to God what Ruth said to Naomi, your people are my people. I'm part of this. O'Donovan says to see ourselves as a people is a work of moral imagination. I'd say now more than ever. To see ourselves as a people is a work of moral imagination. It's an insight into reality, The reality of what we are given to be and do together. The reality of what God has given us to be and do together. Individualists cannot lead because they have no sense of identity beyond self. And so they cannot be rulers among their people. That's my preparatory prophetic word to our future leaders. And I want to wrap up with this in conclusion. You'll notice that as with the other prophets, if you kind of step back from the Bible and you really think about where Samuel fits into this, Samuel, like Moses and Abraham before him, he is completely pointing us beyond himself ultimately to Christ because you and I are working out this prophetic mission of prosecution and preparation now, but we're working it out now in an entirely different age where there's not Saul or David or Solomon or one of the disastrous kings who came later. We are, we are under the rule of a perfect king. God has seated him above all rulers and authorities to whom we are bearing witness in this age. And it is by his spirit alone that the hearts of the children of men are turned to righteousness. He does the work by His Spirit, even as His Spirit gives us the mission of prophethood. And so I want to just encourage you to go forth to your prophetic calling this week, whether it's prosecution or preparation, to go to that work with this assurance that of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Amen. Father, give us that peace in knowing that you... Reign through your Son by your Spirit and make us faithful prophets in this needy age as we both speak to those in authority and raise up the next generation of those who will rule in your name. In Jesus we pray, amen.